And this is the pivot. And now we begin a whole new section with David. Now, chapter 1 of 2 Samuel continued the first section of Samuel 27 through 1 Samuel, where this was serial narration, meaning that everything picked up from the previous, and all these stories were dependent upon each other. You saw that flow. Now we are moving into episodic narrative with chapter 2, meaning that we're not going to really be given like a flow of narrative of this story just flowing to the next, the next, the next. It's going to be very much events, and these events are lots of time is going to be passed. Chapter 2 through chapter 9 of 2 Samuel is episodic narrative. And a lot of these chapters are isolated events, and some of them might even take place much later in David's reign. And some might be taking place at the beginning of the reign. Afterward, chapter 2, verse 1, David inquired of Yahweh, Should I go up to one of the cities of Judah? And Yahweh told him, Go up. We don't know how many days have passed from now Saul's report. We know he was there for three days after Ziklag was burned down. He found out about it, and he mourned it all the way through the third day. And somewhere in the evening, he killed a guy. That means the fourth day, he's still there. Between the fourth day and him talking to God, we have no idea how many days have passed. It could have been that very night of the third day, going into the fourth day, or it could be weeks later. We have no idea. What we do know is it's given Israel, Abner, plenty of time to do what he wants to do. So Yahweh said, go. David asked, where should I go? And Yahweh replied to Hebron. Hebron is right here on the map, centrally located in Judah. So David went up along with his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreelite, and Abigail, formerly the wife of Nabal the Carmelite. Notice how many, every single time she's referred is the widow, the widow, the widow. The narrator is reminding you that this is not necessarily legit. David also brought along the men who were with him, each with his family. They settled in the cities of Hebron. The men of Judah came there and anointed David as king over the people of Judah. Judah. David first becomes the king over Judah. This is his family. They're the ones that supported him. He's the one who supported them. This is the first place that he gets anointed. David was told that the people of Jabesh-Gilead are the ones who buried Saul. So David sent messengers to the people of Jabesh-Gilead and told them, May you be blessed by Yahweh because you have shown this kindness to your Lord Saul by burying him. Now may Yahweh show you true kindness. I also will reward you because you have done this deed. Now be courageous and prove to be valiant warriors, for your Lord Saul is dead. The people of Judah have anointed me as king over them. So he sends messengers all with the north of Jabesh Gilead. And he rewards them, one, for their kindness to Saul, but he also rewards them because he's got a lot of work to do to create ties with the north. The north has largely belonged to Saul. They have largely supported Saul, valued Saul. David hasn't really been anywhere in the north for the last 15-something years. And so David is going to begin to build bridges with the north so that he will have something to build his throne on. Verse 8. Meanwhile, while David was in Ziklag, Abner, son of Ner, the general in command of Saul's army, had taken Saul's son, Ishbosheth, and had brought him to Mahanaman. And he appointed him king over Gilead, the Geshurites, Jezreel, Ephraim, Benjamin, and all of Israel. 
Ishbosheth's son of Saul was 40 years old when he began to rule over Israel. He ruled two years. However, the people of Judah followed David, and David was king of Hebron over the people of Judah for seven and a half years. So now at the very beginning of the reign, David's kingdom is split. The green represents the territory that David has, and the purple represents the territory that Ishbosheth has. So, you always thought David was the first, second king of Israel. Not. He's the third. Now, he's technically the second of all the twelve tribes, but not the second king over Israel. Abner seizes his opportunity. David is in Philistine territory. There's no king. Abner's later going to tell Ishbosheth that he knows that David is God's anointed. He knows that he has gone against God by making Ishbosheth king. So it's not like nobody knows that David is supposed to be the next king. And Abner most certainly knows that Yahweh has anointed David. So he has willingly gone against the will of God by putting Ishbosheth as king over Benjamin and all the tribes of the north. Now lots of things are happening here. First, the reason he's able to do this is because David's not there. That could be a huge justification to get the support of the north by saying, where's David? And I can almost, God, see, I told you, David. <laughs> One, you should have never gone to Ziklag because it's going to have a year and four months later consequence of that. And two, you should have gone to Ziklag the minute the generals kicked you out of the army. You should have then at least done it when the city was burned <clears> down. And then you had to talk to me. You didn't see any of these signs. And because David didn't obey God, because David didn't get the hints, because David blatantly went to the Philistine territory and he shouldn't, now he's dealing with this. Abner seized a power vacuum. Abner is incredibly loyal to Saul. And even in Saul's death, he's loyal to the family and he's following tradition where the son becomes king, even though Yahweh has bucked tradition by picking somebody else. This shows you how powerful the theme of a king like all the other nation is continuing to go even in Saul's death. We're even going to point his son against God in the way that all the other nations do it. And he puts him into power. The other thing we're told is that all the sons of Saul had died on the battlefield. Now remember, no, it didn't say all the sons, but the sons of Saul. Sorry, sons, plural, does not automatically mean all the sons. But you assume it's all the sons at that moment because... It says the sons of Saul. Later you find out, obviously this guy didn't die. Now this guy's 40 years old when he becomes king, which is about a couple of days after Saul died. Why didn't he die in the battlefield? Because he wasn't there. Why was a 40-year-old man, the son of a king, not fighting in the battlefield? Because he's not that kind of a guy. He's a coward. And that's the image that's going to be presented here is that Abner is putting him into power. And not only is Abner faithful and loyal to Saul, even his death, but Abner also probably still wants to maintain his power as general. And he can't take the throne because he has no biological claim to the throne, no validity, no marriage, no nothing. But the son can. But the son is the kind of guy who's too much of a coward and too spineless to go into war as a 40-year-old man with his own father and his brothers who's expected of them as kings and princes and yet suggests that Abner could probably control him pretty easily. And later we're going to be told that Abner was strengthening his position of power in the palace of Ishbosheth. 
And so this is all real politic. It's politics at its best. It's a king and a general and an aftermath like all the other nations. And so he's putting the power. The other thing we're told is he's putting the power all the way over here on the other side of the Jordan River in Gilead. Why does he make that the capital? Because that is far away from David as you can get and far away is from the Philistines as you can. He wants power, but he has just received. Remember, he was the general fighting in that last war. He just received a huge, devastating blow from the Philistines. He wants to get as far away from them as possible so he can regroup and rebuild later. He also knows that David is God's anointed, and David's probably going to be coming back soon, even though he's a little delayed. And he knows what kind of a warrior David is, and he's also figured out that David's successful in everything he does. And everybody's figured out why by now, and it's because Yahweh is with him. And so this is all strategic positioning for Abner to try to maintain his power and probably truly also maintain the power of Saul, the house of Saul, because he was loyal to him, especially when he confesses, I'm going against God. When you're saying, I'm going against God, there's loyalty there. There's some kind of a loyalty. So David now has to deal with this because he wasn't where he was supposed to be to begin with. This line is this river right above Jerusalem. Technically, Jerusalem is a Benjamite territory when you go to the book of Joshua. And the Benjamites are the center of power right now because that's Saul's tribe and now Ishbosheth. And Abner is a nephew of Saul, so it's his tribe as well. So why is it that David gets this part of the land? Because Jerusalem's controlled by the Jebusites right now. And Saul's never been able to take the city of Jerusalem from the Jebusites. And he really tries to stay far away from any non-Israelite that he can because he's not good at dealing with them. And so it automatically falls into Judah's territory by default. Later, David will take the city of Jerusalem. And that's why Jerusalem will stay in Judah for pretty much the whole life of Israel. Because Benjamin was never... So they didn't technically take it from the Benjamites... They took it indirectly from the Benjamites because the Benjamites were never able to take it themselves. Here's the other thing you need to know. Ishbosheth's name is actually Ishbaal. And Ishbaal, now don't read into that. In Chronicles, he's called Ishbaal by his real name. Now you need to understand the word Baal is just a Hebrew word that means Lord or Master. And there are times that God himself is called Baal. But it means that only in a master sense, a lord sense. The reason that this is not a big deal right now is because Baal worship is not big. It has only shown itself a tiny little bit in the Gideon story. But overall, Baal is not a big thing. It is the Phoenicians that pretty much worship Baal. And as they've had control over the Canaanites, Baal worship was kind of there during the book of Judges but it never really got a strong foothold. But the Phoenicians haven't had influence or power since the days of Joshua, really, and all throughout Samuel and then David. So Baal is kind of a god that they know of, but that's also like referring to Allah as God, but still using the word God for our God. We don't automatically think, oh, you can't use the word God for Allah because he's not really God, or you can't call our God God because Allah is also called God. We just use the word God. So you need to think of it more like that way. That Baal just means Lord or Master. Now later, when we get to the book of Kings, 
and Solomon's empire falls apart, but all worship is going to come in with a vengeance. It's specifically going to come through a woman by the name of Jezebel, Jezebel, who marries Ahab, one of the most powerful dynasties in all of Israel, and he is going to bring Baal worship in, and it's going to infiltrate the land like big time. It's at that point that Baal, they can't separate Baal from Lord and Master. Baal is always the name of a false god, and they have a hard time calling anything else Baal, even though it's a legit Hebrew word for Lord and Master. It's at that point that the author of Kings, who's writing during the exile... So the author of Kings and Samuel gets re-edited as Ishbosheth. And it's not Mephibosheth, it's Mephibah Baal. So they don't want anybody to think that there's some kind of like Baal connection there. So they go through and change the names. The Book of Chronicles author, he doesn't care. He's got a whole different agenda. So you just need to be aware of that if you see that anywhere. Or especially when you're reading Chronicles and you're like, who's this guy? It sounds like he's Ishbosheth, but he is. Verse 12. So then Abner, son of Ner, the servants of Ishbosheth, son of went out from Mount and Gibeon, and Job, son of Zariah, and the servants of David also went out and confronted them at the pool of Gibeon. One group stationed themselves on one side of the pool, and the other group on the other side of the pool. And Abner said to Job, Let the soldiers get up and fight before us. And Job said, So be it. So they basically, in the forest of Ephraim, in Gibeon, around Gibeon, these woods, one side, the north, led by Abner, and the other side, led by Joab, because Job is now the general of David's armies. Remember, we've talked about these guys. There are three brothers, and I'm going to repeat it again because this is where it becomes very important. There are three brothers. The older brother is Joab, the next is Abishai, and the next one is Asiel. There are three brothers. They're all the nephews of David through his sister, Zariah. There's two things I told you about them. You need to understand they're extremely violent brothers. They are torn from the culture that they live in. Totally torn from it. They're extremely violent brothers. They serve as David's senior generals, Joab being the most senior of them all. But the second thing you need to know is they're extremely loyal to David. Extremely loyal. These three guys are going to play a very prominent role now. Well, two specifically throughout the rest of the book of 2 Samuel. And you need to understand those two things as we go in. So Joab is this extremely violent and loyal man to David who's been on the run with David, might even be included in one of those wicked men that followed David. As we keep reading, we find out he definitely fits that category. And they decide that this is not good for Israel. That the last thing they need is the Philistines are upon them. They've received a bigger defeat than they ever have in a long time. And they're going to now, we don't know why they've come to the conclusion, how they've agreed, but they're going to sue for peace. And so they meet in the woods because it's hard to march an army into the woods and betray the other person. And they bring a group of people with them, and they're meeting at this pool, and they're going to sit down, and they're going to solve this through a champion battle. And this time, rather than one-on-one with David and Goliath, they're going to do 12-on-12. 12, 12 men are going to face up with 12 men, and they're going to fight each other. And that's the deal, to try to solve this, this, this dispute. David is in Hebron, Ishbosheth is up in the Gilead region, and the armies are duking it out. 
it seems as if just they haven't really entered into a full-blown war yet. They've had battles and skirmishes, but a full-blown civil war hasn't really erupted yet. So they decide to settle this. So they got up, verse 15, and crossed over by number, 12 belonging to Benjamin, to Ishbosheth, son of Saul, and 12 from the servants of David. As they grappled with one another, each one stabbed his opponent with his sword, and they fell dead together, so that the place was called the Field of Flints. It is in Gibeon. So they begin to grapple with each other, fighting, and what happens is all 24 people kill each other simultaneously. Now, I wouldn't see it as like they snap their finger, all 24. But the idea is as they're fighting, like two men go down, two men go down, and more and more and more. And by it's all done, there is no victor. They're literally all 24 have killed each other. It's a complete draw. That's dumbfounding. How do you actually theologically interpret that event? <laughs> like, is God saying, like, that you should both be kings? We know that's not true. I mean, it's just like, what the heck happened? Now the battle was very severe that day, and Abner and the men of Israel were overcome by David's soldiers. The three sons of Zariah were with there, Joab, Abai, Shai, and Asiel. Now Asiel was quick on his feet as one of the gazelles in the field, and Asiel chased Abner without turning to the right or to the left as he followed Abner. So the men that are left in the woods, they immediately begin to attack each other. The draw kind of freaks them all out. Joab and his brothers and the other men are way far superior to Abner. They overpower him. He ends up being the last survival in this peace thing. He is running for his life because his army is outside the forest. And if he can get to the army, he's safe at least. And so he's running for his life. And Joab and his little, little brother, Asiel, are chasing him down. But Asiel is like a track star. He's fleet-footed like a gazelle. And gazelle are fast. They can outrun lions. He is running and chasing him down. He's catching up and getting closer. Then Abner turned and asked, verse 20, Is that you, Asiel? He replied, Yes, it is. Now remember, at one time, all these people were fighting with each other under Saul's command. Before David went on the run, all of these guys, Abner, Joab, David, Asiel, they were all comrades fighting the same side. It's like our civil war where brothers and fathers and sons all of a sudden were against each other based on sides. This shows you how this civil war is ripping Israel apart rather than truly being unified like God had envisioned all the way back in the times of Moses. Abner said to him, Turn aside from your right or to the left. Capture one of the soldiers and take this, his equipment for yourself. <laughs> Grab one of my guys and take them instead. But Asiel was not willing to turn aside and following him. So Abner spoke again to Asiel, Turn aside from following me. I do not want to strike you to the ground. How then could I show my face in the presence of Joab, your brother? What he really means is not, how could I bear to stand in front of him, but, oh my gosh, the blood vengeance from that violent man that would ensue upon me? But Asiel refused to turn aside. So Abner struck him and the Abnum with the back end of his spear. The spear came on his back, and Asiel collapsed on the spot and died there right before Abner. Everyone who now comes to that place where Asiel fell dead pauses in respect. So they're running, and Asiel is getting closer and closer and closer and closer, probably to the point that he thinks that he has become the victor to overcome Joab, and Job sees the opportunity of just taking his spear and shoving it behind himself as he's running. Asiel's own momentum drives him onto the spear and impales him and he dies and collapses dead. This is Joab's little brother. So Joab and Abishai 
chase Abner, and at sunset they came to the hill of Ammon near Gia, on the way to the wilderness of Gibeon. And the Benjamites formed their ranks behind Abner, and they were like a single army standing at the top of a certain hill. Then Abner called out to Joab, Must the sword devour forever? Don't you realize that this will turn bitter in the end? When will the people, when you tell the people to turn aside from pursuing their brothers? Job replied, As surely as God lives, if you had not said this, it would have been morning before the people would have abandoned pursuit of their brothers. Then Job blew the ram's horn, and all the people stopped in their tracks, and they stopped chasing Israel and ceased fighting. Abner's men went through the Arab all that night, and they crossed the Jordan River, and went through the whole region of Ber- Bitron and came to Mahanam. So basically, Abner gets his army, and he yells out and says, are we just going to, as brothers, keep killing each other until we're all dead, like we just have done in this force? And Joab basically says, you've kind of spoken logically. This kind of makes sense. And I, if you hadn't spoke logically, I probably would have just tried to kill you no matter what because you just killed my little brother. And so they stopped fighting. But the question is, does Joab really mean that? No. He's an extremely violent man whose brother was killed by this guy, and he most likely said, I'll back off because he saw there was only a few of them in the came out of the woods, and now the army was there. And so the question is, what is Job going to do? Verse 30. Now Job returned from chasing Abner and assembled all the people. Nineteen of David's soldiers were missing, in addition to Asio. But David's soldiers had slaughtered the Benjamites and Abner's men, and all 360 men had died. That number shows you who God is with. That's the point of the narrator. They took Asiel's body and buried him in his father's tomb at Bethlehem. And Joab and his men then traveled all that night and reached Hebron by dawn. However, the war was prolonged between the house of Saul and the house of David, and David was becoming steadily stronger while the house of Saul was becoming increasingly weaker. So the war ensues. It's a two-year civil war because we were told that earlier. And this war ensues. So Job didn't really mean we're going to stop fighting each other because we're brothers. He meant I just can't overtake you right now. This is not good. David is supposed to be the anointed king who would fulfill the covenant of Abraham by reuniting the tribes together under a godly anointed leader. But because David wasn't where he was supposed to be, now there's a poser king, a civil war launching. No longer are they fighting the Philistines, but now they're fighting each other. Brothers are killing brothers. And this is going to create more violence. And even when the civil war comes to an end, there's still going to be more violence 